The Supreme Court again declines an emergency request from gun rights plaintiffs. Plus, Discourse Magazine editor David Machi on the troubling connection between chaos and gun sales. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gatowski. I'm also a CNN contributor and the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free weekly newsletter now. If you haven't already, you will get one email a week straight to your inbox that tells you exactly what's going on with guns in America to keep you up to date. And of course, if you want to go a bit deeper, you can buy a membership and read our analysis pieces. There's hundreds of them that are member exclusives, uh, and you get a number of other memberships perks as well, like the ability to appear on this podcast as we have today. We have a, a member segment at the end of this show, so make sure you stay tuned for that. Always a joy to do those. Uh, but before we get to that, we are going to have, a, I think, a really interesting discussion with the editor-in-chief of Discourse Magazine, David uh, Machi, who is here with us now. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Steve. Nice to be with you. Yes. Uh, can you tell us tell us a little bit before we get started, a little bit more about Discourse or, and a little bit more about your background? Yeah. So Discourse is uh, about three years old. Uh, it was founded in October of 2020. Uh, it's published by the Mercatus Center, uh, which is uh, out of George Mason University. It's an online magazine. Uh, it's entirely free. Uh, there are no subscription costs or uh, or anything like that. And it's a general interest magazine. It's a it's a journal of politics, economics, and culture, uh, and it has a couple of uh, different missions. The, the sort of primary mission is to promote and defend liberal values, a small L, liberal values like tolerance, freedom of speech, freedom of conscience, free markets, uh, and this is all part of um, the Mercatus Center's uh, mission as well. And sort of within that. Uh, discourse tries to be a venue for different perspectives, different voices uh, on all kinds of issues, including guns, uh, and uh, offer readers different perspectives because we think that when ideas sort of meet, when perspectives meet, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, our readership, our society in general uh, is uh, is stronger. So that's that's where discourse, uh, uh, that's that discourse's mission. Uh, and again, it's, uh, it's entirely free and, uh, online. So I hope, uh, hope some of your, uh, listeners and, uh, and podcast watchers will check it out. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and we, and we have great, I was going to say, we have great authors, including <laughs> Stephen Gutowski. So. Yes. I've, I've written for discourse in a number of occasions and I plan to write for it again. Uh, you know, if we, uh, in the future, if we have some some good ideas that come up that we both agree on, I'd, I'd be happy to contribute some more over there. I like what you guys are doing, uh, and and you're on Substack now too, so it's a pretty easy thing for people to 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 subscribe to if they want. It is, yeah. So if, if you subscribe, uh, we there, there's no pitch for donations or anything like that. Uh, we'll just send you each article uh, as it's published, and then a newsletter at the beginning of every uh, week with a, a specific article written by one of our editors, myself, or one of my colleagues, um, and uh, and also some some lists of articles from our archives. So uh, I think it's a win-win for people. Uh, so I hope they I hope they look at it. I hope they subscribe. So and that that uh, 
editor's article is what one of those is what we're going to be talking about today. Right. Specifically a piece that you wrote called the uh, gun ownership is a hedge against chaos. Uh, and I think there's some really interesting ideas in here. Mm-hmm. Um, that is some stuff that I've thought about for a while now. Uh, you know, we, we've described on this show a number of times how gun sales tend to increase around uh, events where people feel um, that they're that you know they that they're insecure, right? Yeah. That 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 they don't they they feel that things are uh, a bit out of control. They want to have that ability to protect themselves if need be. And this is why, for instance, in 2020, you saw such a huge increase in gun ownership. We've talked a lot about this uh, over the last couple of years on this show. Uh, guns, essentially, gun sales have become a kind of chaos meter, uh, perhaps, or at least the Americans' perception of chaos to some degree. Not all gun sales, obviously, are are driven by that. But uh, the big spikes that you've seen over the last several decades, really, uh, have surrounded this. And it's kind of, as you note in this article, the thesis of this article is that it's connected to this change in gun culture that went from more prioritization of hunting uh, to one that more prioritizes uh, self-defense. Not that those things, you know, of course are, uh, it's more like a priority change rather than people right. weren't ever concerned about self-defense before right. or that people don't care about hunting today but right uh right. can you just walk us through like what what it is about this that concerned you because that was that was the main thing is that this is actually some there, there's concerning aspects to this yeah so you know i i i think that people are feeling uh more vulnerable uh than they than they did maybe 20 years ago i think they're less trustful of institutions, including the government and police, the institutions that have been, you know, tasked with protecting them. Um, I think it's hard to underestimate, and I, I don't think we really even fully know yet, the extent to which COVID uh, contributed and amplified some of these feelings. Um, certainly, everybody felt vulnerable in March of 2020, uh, and when we didn't really have a clear sense of what was going on. Um, and then there's the sort of disorder. Uh, that followed uh, the George Floyd protests and the, and the various in various cities, the sort of destruction of property, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, January 6th and the assault on the Capitol. But I think all of these things um, helped to create a greater sense of vulnerability, a greater sense of disorder and chaos, as you said, you use the word chaos meter. Um, so uh, I, I agree. I think we're at a time when people are, are particularly uh, concerned about these things. I, I, as I say in the piece, I, I get that. I really understand it. And, and not only that, but I, I have at times thought about buying a gun too. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not a gun owner. Uh, yeah. I never, never have been. Um, so I, I don't know if you want me to, to I can talk a little bit about that, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, as well, um, you know, f- first I want to just talk, you know, get into that, that 2020 uh sure motivations just a little bit because it's yeah. you know there there like you said there was march 2020 the shutdown started to happen people you know the, the virus was spreading police were uh short-staffed there were prisoner releases and there's a lot of good reasons why people might feel insecure at that moment uh about how you know there were food shortages um you know basically everything you could imagine in a in a uh worst case scenario situation yeah. Yes, and so it's not surprising that, that drove a lot of people to want to 
ha- have the option to defend themselves. Then you had uh, the George Floyd's killing itself, which made a lot of um, African Americans feel insecure and, yes. and increased tensions between minority communities and the police. So that leaves a lot of minorities feeling less than secure themselves, um, more distrustful of law enforcement, which can drive people to buy guns. Then you had the protests and uh, eventually the riots that followed that, which made uh, lots of other people feel that they, the police can protect them either. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, that drives people to buy guns. And then, yeah, January 6th, political violence at the Capitol, uh, something that hasn't been common in the United States since the Civil War, right? Yes. That drives that. That's another motivator for people to go out and buy guns. And, uh, you know, I think the gun owning perspective on this, or at the very least, the gun rights movement's perspective on this is the, uh, you know, it's good that people have that option, right? That they, if they feel like uh, police or the government can't protect them, that they have an option to go out and protect themselves. And so it's looked at, uh, I think, primarily as a positive thing when gun sales go up. Uh, and more, especially when it's among new gun owners, people who hadn't owned guns before. Um, and, and so that's what I want to dig into a little bit more, yeah. because uh, obviously you can see the logic there among gun owners. Like, yeah, uh, it's good I, that I people have the option to defend themselves. But yeah, I, yeah, uh, yeah, I, I want to get a little bit more into why that why it can also be concerning. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, I definitely think people should have the option. I say that in the piece. Uh, mm-hmm. and I mean, obviously I believe in some, uh, uh, safeguards to make sure that guns don't fall into the hands legally into the hands of, of the wrong people. But I definitely agree that law abiding citizens have the right to arm themselves. I definitely understand why people feel vulnerable, why, why they might want to get again. And as a gun, as I mentioned, I, I've never owned a gun in my life, but I've thought about getting one in the last couple right. of years for the very reasons we're, we're discussing. Um, but I also see a negative here, uh, and the negative is that in a society where more and more people are owning firearms, particularly for the purpose of self-defense and not recreational shooting, which which used to be the primary reason why people bought guns for hunting, for skeet shooting, for target shooting, and things like that. Um, and today, of course, it's flipped, and it's now uh, uh, driven by, largely driven by by desire a desire to protect oneself and one's family and friends. I, all of that, I, again, again, I, I'm fine with that. It's just that I do think that it's, it, that it's, it's, it's a bad symptom or, uh, uh, or a symptom, I should say, of some very bad things that are going on. So, and we can tick through some of those. I mean, let's start with maybe the biggest overarching, uh, problem, which I think is a trust problem. Uh, and if you go and look at polls, uh, over the course of the last, 30 or 40 years, you'll see that virtually every institution, major institution in America, including law enforcement, including the government, including private institutions that are public facing, um, uh, like the media, whatever, they've all lost, a dramat- dramatically lost uh, trust. In many cases, almost you know, 60, 70, 80% of Americans will say they don't trust particular institutions. And so when you have that, you definitely have people asking themselves what they can do, how what sort of workaround uh, uh, they can they can uh, affect w- when an institution, at least in their mind, isn't doing isn't doing its job properly. So there's that. We talked about crime. Obviously, there's been a, a spike in certain kinds of crimes. I know there has, you know, some crimes have not gone up. Certain property crimes, but but 
the biggie, right, which is homicides, that's yeah. risen uh, and it's stayed relative. It's risen just in the last three, three or four years. It stayed relatively high. Uh, well, it's and, declining now, but, but okay. it has it is still higher than the pre 2020 levels. Right. And and yes, there was a jump that went almost back to the 1990s levels, which were much more. You know, people haven't realized that the last 20 years have been relatively right. low. Well, and uh, murder rate in the United States. If but, you look yeah. at the murder rate, you'll see that it's gone since the 90s. It's gone down, mm -hmm. down, down, down. And then it's sort of yep. up. It's ticked up again. It's not yep. where it was in the 70s, which was, I think, at least at least in, re in recent history, the highest it was uh, sure. uh, in, in our country. But it, in 2020, 2021, it got pretty close. And mm -hmm. I think, mm -hmm. again, some of this isn't necessarily entirely about reality. It's about perception, right? I mean, so... Yeah. Perception is ultimately true or not true or partly true is what drives people to do things. And in this case is driving people to buy guns and train how to use them. Uh, so, so there's crime, there's trust. Um, there's a sense of, I mean, I think polarization, political polarization and social polarization certainly, uh, helps. Uh, again, I mentioned COVID and its impact. So you use the word perfect storm a few minutes ago. I, I think we came pretty close to that. And I think. As I say in the piece, I while I understand why someone might say, "Oh, I think I need something here to protect myself because i'm I'm much more concerned about my safety than I used to be. On the other hand, a society in which, say, I don't know, another twenty five or thirty or forty million people now have firearms, I'm not so sure that's a better society. Uh, and I mean, you know, I, I just worry that, again, gun accidents, uh, people getting upset and shooting each other. I, I assume, and, and again, I, I, I can't imagine that I'm wrong about this, that it's just much more likely uh, when people are armed uh, than when they're not. And it's sad um, that people feel the need, and it's it, again, it's not a criticism of them, but it's sad when people feel the need to do this. Um, I mean, most of us who don't really probably are, are probably not all that interested in guns, not interested in hunting or these other things, you know, probably wouldn't own a handgun, but for this fear. And so who wants to go through life afraid? Uh, no one. Uh, who wants to feel this necessity? I'm sure the people who are buying these guns would much prefer not to feel it. Uh, so, um, so I see it as a, as I, I obviously I, I support the right. Uh, to purchase firearms for self-defense, hunting, any any reason like that, but I also feel like it's too bad that we've reached a state a state in our country where this is happening. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think a lot of a lot of gun rights advocates would disagree with the the last bit about more people owning guns being a negative. Obviously, they they would you know mo most uh, gun rights advocates feel the other way that it's a positive. Um, but I do think that you know this perspective of uh, you know, looking at uh, as somebody who supports gun rights generally, uh, like you do, um, also recognizing that the the reason why a lot more people are buying guns now is not necessarily a positive one, right? right? Like that's 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 a much more interesting conversation to me, right? Like, yeah, I think a lot of gun owners, a lot of uh, gun rights advocates would argue that people should own guns. That maybe you know people are kind of uh, and, and maybe you can, you know, especially coming from a, a libertarian think tank from a libertarian standpoint that people are too trusting of, uh, 
law enforcement or the government to protect to offer them protection uh you know in even just normal times yes right that the this is a common argument you hear in gun rights circles that like uh you know the my 45 is faster than 90 911 right right or, or right. whatever right um or, or you know when when seconds matter the police are minutes away that, that sure. is, these are common tropes or arguments that you hear there's obviously truth to them but um uh you know it gets at this idea that uh people that that there's a belief that people are are too trusting of government in this way it's for their own personal safety uh as it is yeah. um and so when people when these issues arise it is sort of chaos happens and people start to reconsider that calculation and they buy a gun i think people view that as in the gun owning community as a positive thing but you're saying that um and, and I, you know i think this is something i've thought as well that you know if, if a lot more people are buying guns because they're really worried about the state of the country that they may need uh some sort of deadly force protection in the, That's in right. the near future that's not necessarily a positive societal sign. That's right. That's and, what you're getting at here. Yeah. So yeah, let me let me sort of bracket my my response with uh, a couple of things. One is I I um, you know, I grew up around guns, so I'm mm -hmm. not unfamiliar with them. I um, you know, my dad was a big hunter, a big ski shooter. Guns were a big part of his his recreational life, uh, and I joined him in all of that when I was a young when I was a teenager when I was a young man. Uh, we did a lot of that sort of thing together. Uh, I never really enjoyed it all that much. I did it largely because I wanted to spend time with him. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but I, I came to respect his, his use of guns, the safety, uh, uh, you know, his, his commitment to safety, his commitment to, to, to being very careful. Uh, I got to know a lot of his friends, uh, in that world and I liked them personally and i found them again very responsible in, in their use of guns so um so i i have a positive view of at least that gun community um and i i have no doubt that people who are who are uh, buying guns for as i think i said in the piece people who are buying guns for self-defense i'm sure they're almost all uh law-abiding decent people and so and again i i am someone who thought at, at one point that i would <laughs> I, I've thought at times that I would join them, but yeah. to your and, to your, and the, the reason we know that a lot of people bought guns during that period is be, is not because there's a national registry that can tell us how many guns are out there. It's because we follow the background check numbers. So people right. presumably who are buying them can pass a background check to to get them, which indicates that it, what we're seeing with that increase was you know law abiding people buying well, guns. And, uh, and as David Yamani points out in, in another discourse piece. Uh, uh, we see a, an uptick in, in the number of people who are training to use guns. Um, mm. And so, you know, that's a good thing too. Obviously you don't want someone just buying a gun, loading it and walking sure. around. Um, so all of that is good. Uh, so it's not, again, it's not about the, it's not, my criticism is not of, of gun owners. Uh, mm -hmm. It's um, it's just of the, it's not a criticism of, it's a criticism more of our country and the direction in which we're headed. Yeah, when you look at this. More of a, you see it more as a signal. This yes, is, this is not. That's right. Even though you might you you support gun ownership uh, generally and, and gun rights, uh, th this current cycle that we see with gun sales being driven by 
specific kinds of concern right by fear is what worries you yeah, yeah. i mean I, I let's just call it what it is i assume a lot of people are afraid justifiably uh, uh maybe the fear uh, out sort of out sort of paces reality but a lot of these perceptions are at least partly based on reality if not wholly mm -hmm. Um, yeah. so, but when you see, I mean, what, what prompted me to write this piece was the NBC, recent NBC poll that showed that for the first time, at least since they'd been asking this question, which I think they had been for about 25 years, a majority of American households uh, had either a gun or, you know, someone owned a gun in a majority American of voters but yeah. among American voters. Yes. But actually it's, I, and I know that some people might say, well, that's not everyone, but that's actually a relatively attracts pretty well with the adult population I worked for used to work for a polling uh, outfit. Um, and so uh, it's it's a very good uh, 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 way to it's it's not a, it's it's not an it's not an inaccurate way to look at sort of the general pub, general public opinion uh, and general sort of pu public uh, views. So you have a majority of people, uh, you know, let's assume, by the way, that that poll is an outlier and that it's really 48 percent, not 52 percent or 46 percent. I saw a poll from Gallup from a year or two ago that said 45%. Yeah, let's assume it's somewhere... it at 46. Okay. So yeah. let's assume it's there. You know, we don't even have to go to 52. That's incredible, actually. And a lot of women are buying guns. A lot of African-Americans and other minorities are buying guns. Obviously, people are feeling afraid. Um, and so, and there, and as I said, when Pew, and I think it was in 2023, polled people and asked them why they were buying guns, Recreational shooting was at about 30, a little over 30%. Uh, almost three quarters said that they were buying guns for, for primarily for, uh, uh, for self-protection. Yep. And again, just, I, I just urge people to think a little bit about that. That really is an indictment of how our society has been developing, how elites have been running our society and, you know, the, the lack of trust that average people now have in, in that. And, and again, that sort of tracks with, what we know about trust in elites and trust in elite institutions just in general. Again, you can take the media, you can take professions like law or medicine, uh, you know, very few institutions Congress. in America. Yeah, Yo, Congress is at the very bottom of the list, <laughs> yep. uh, but very few institutions in America uh, rate above 50 percent in, in terms of trust. I think the military does. I want to say small business owners, maybe, but it's, it's mm -hmm. just a tiny number. Institutions you would assume would, including law enforcement. Uh, they're, they're quite far down churches and, and religious institutions quite far down. So, um, we're living in a low trust, a low, much lower trust society. And I think that the gun sales are reflective of that. And, and again, I, I just, I'm just pointing out that that's, that's a shame. Uh, and I don't think America will be, I, I I'll disagree with the gun lobby or, or gun control, uh, 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 sorry, not gun control, gun, gun advocates. Uh, on this point, I don't think it's great that, you know, let's say, let's say we reach, uh, reach a point where a majority of adults own a handgun. I don't think that'll be a good situation. I just don't. Um, mm. I do think there'll be more violence. And, um, and again, I, I'm not one of these people who thinks that, for example, you know, if we banned all guns tomorrow, uh, crime would be, would be dramatically reduced or that there would be no more school shootings or things like that. Unfortunately, I don't think that would work, but I do think that a highly armed population is going to be a, it's a country with a highly armed population is going to be a more dangerous place to live. Um, so because we're all human, we all make mistakes. When you have a gun, your mistakes can be just much more, much more dramatic and much more tragic. 
Well, I certainly think that there's a base level agreement about keeping firearms, as you mentioned earlier in the show, out of uh, the hands of, of people who are uh, who have shown themselves to be dangerous and gone through, you know, yes. court process, gone through due process, like, you know, convicted violent criminals, think people of that nature, uh, people who are have been adjudicated as a threat to themselves or others because they're mentally ill, that, that sort of there's very broad base, I think, support for those. Guys. This is obviously, I think, much more uh, d- debate over whether or not everyone else having a gun is good or bad. Um, and, and you know, you get I don't, I don't want to turn the whole show into just this back and forth. Right. But, right. Uh, you know, there are certainly there's uh, uh, arguments on either side. Obviously, the gun rights side, you hear uh, often that murder decrease we talked about earlier occurred while there was gun sales were increasing significantly throughout the country. So, uh, you know, and, and, and there are other points on the other side uh, of that as well. But, um, but, you know, it sounds to me like you, you do, you do have some basic concern about more people owning guns generally, because you think it could lead to, uh, you know, confrontations that wouldn't have ended in, you know, with deadly force implications now will is sort of what you're getting at, I guess. Yeah. With that point. But, but it seems like your bigger concern is why people are buying guns. You, yes. Because you're, uh, which is an indicator of uh, another indicator, I suppose, <laughs> alongside all these other things that you mentioned yes. of um, just growing societal issues in the United States with trust in one's neighbor, trust in one's government, one's law enforcement, uh, one's uh, you know, whatever institution you point to. Yes. Uh, and, and that people trust those less now, and that's leading them to buy uh, the means to protect themselves. Uh, and so if people were buying guns because hunting became uh, a renewed, po- uh, you know, just gained yes. renewed popularity, that wouldn't be as much of a concern for you. Or if, you know, three gun shooting was, became the next big professional sport and everybody wanted to start three gun shooting and that's why they were getting into guns, that yeah. wouldn't be as much of a concern, but it's this specific role that chaos and uh, fear of oftentimes legitimate fear of what's happening in society. That's what, that's where your concern comes. Yeah. I think if we had, I mean, you know, in the 1990s, we had a a great uh, sort of push, which, which of course famously began in New York to, um, uh, to find ways to deal with uh, crime and to lower the crime rate. And, and it succeeded. Uh, You know, I was actually covering Congress as a reporter when the crime bill uh, was being debated and actually Joe Biden, was one of the people who pushed uh, the crime bill through the Senate. Um, and, you know, the, I, the idea there was, you know, we, we have a better idea of what works. Uh, let's double down on that. More police, more ways to, better ways to deploy them, things like that. I think if, and again, I, there are so many issues here. Uh, so there's this is a huge, like, mosaic of, of, uh, of issues. Uh, you know, we can talk about trust in the police. We can talk about what the police have done to either earn that distrust or not. There are lots and lots of different things we can talk about, but it would certainly, I think, be better for everyone if uh, people felt safer uh, and that that feeling was based on reality. Uh, and uh, and again, I don't think it's quite as bad as a lot of people think. Uh, again, that's why I said earlier about perception. Some of this, I think, is perception. I have felt it, too. I mean, I just give you an example. I used to take the metro to go into work. And after there was some kind of mass shooting, 
for a week or so afterward, I was actually, you know, I'm sitting in a, in a, in a tin can uh, underground. If somebody pulls a gun out and starts shooting everybody, it's pretty hard to get away from that. And so, you know, you, that sort yep. of thing goes through your mind when you, when you spent, you know, two hours watching CNN talking about something like that. And then you get on a train, uh, you know, where there are absolutely no, it's not like an airplane where at least there's a security, uh, uh, you know, uh, system in place to try to prevent those sorts of things. So, you know, again, I'm absolutely, I, I, I completely sympathize with, with these feelings and empathize with them because I share them. Uh, yeah. but when you take a step back, um, yeah, I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a good sign. Um, you think it's I think, a bad trend. Right? Yes. Yes. That's the, so. that's the really the trend that, that concerns you. Not so much the concept of buying a gun because no, you're no, concerned no, 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 about no. the outside world, but no. this trend that that's becoming a much more common reason for people to buy guns. And, and again, let's assume we get, you know, the polarization subsides, the crime rate drops, uh, trust levels start rising. And somebody comes to me and tells me they still want to buy a gun because they feel like they need to be, they need to protect themselves. Yeah. I, I don't want to take that right away from them. Uh, mm. So, uh, but because I may want to exercise it one day. Uh, yeah. Although, as I say in this piece, I'm a terrible shot. I'm not sure <laughs> well, how good I'd be fixed. at that. But that also, can be fixed with practice. I would say um, one other, one other quick thing. And that is I, I knew someone when I was growing up who had used a gun to defend himself successfully uh, mm -hmm. against, against someone who was assaulting him. Uh, you know, I mean, there obviously there are these more pu pu public examples like what happened in Oregon and Cl was it Clackamas, I think, uh, where someone shot someone who was like, about to engage or engaging in a, beginning to engage in what probably would have been a mass shooting. Yeah, so there I, have been a I, number of those. You know, so I, so, you know, and I thank God those people were there. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, it, it, in you know, it's it's a it's a tough issue, um, and I don't think there's some sort of one answer to all of these questions. And as I said before, right. there are lots of different things going on. I mean, we could talk about loneliness uh, and the yeah. loneliness epidemic in America. Sure. You know, there are lots of issues that I think are adjacent to this or touch on this. Um, it's, it's not, it's not just about crime or disorder or COVID or whatever. Right. Um, it, it, I think yeah. there's a lot going on here. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, just to get into I guess my personal, you know, I don't do this a lot, but, but just my personal views on it. Um, I do, I do definitely see that concern with the trend, right? That the fact that uh, more people are buying guns because that more and more people feel insecure in society uh, or what's happening with, with society at large, uh, that that's definitely concerning along with all the other factors that you noted. Uh, certainly, you could obviously also make the argument of like, how secure should you feel, even if things were going great? You know, if, uh, whatever, you know things are much better now than they were at the in March 2020, right? Yeah. But uh, what is the proper level of uh, concern for your own personal safety? That's a more, you know, per, I guess more personal discussion to have. Right. Like how subjective. much should you trust the government? How much yeah. should you trust law enforcement? I think yes. law enforcement usually most the vast majority of law enforcement officers want to protect people and would try to protect you in a, a situation where you're facing a deadly force but they don't have any legal requirement to do so nobody right. has that only right. you know to defend you uh, and so at the end of the day you know how much security should you feel like that's the other thing is like i don't know but that's separate i think a little bit from 
the trend question. If more people on a societal level are feeling less secure and that's why they're buying guns, maybe it's maybe you think it's good that they maybe you think they've made the right calculation because you thought they should have been buying guns anyway before. But that's you can still be concerned about that trend, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I think if um, every this is a very subjective choice, it's yeah. very, as you say, a personal choice. And so yeah. a lot of it is just how people feel. Uh, it also, it depends on their circumstances. If you're taking a walk, you know, if you're working a night shift and taking a walk at midnight every night to your car after you get out of work, uh, you know, as opposed to me, who you know, who, who stops working at six o'clock, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, it's 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 just different for everybody. Small business owners obviously often use, you know, have firearms, and and again. I, I gather, I know there are people who study this sort of thing and, and, you know, I don't know exactly how that all shakes out, whether you're safer with a gun, if you're, if you're in a store, if you're a store owner or not, but, um, I understand. But it also again, comes down to like personal philosophy of, of whether you'd like to not, whether a gun makes it you invulnerable, right. But yes. Whether you'd like to have the option, even if, uh, you know, whatever negative externalities exist for owning guns. Yes. Right, that, and that becomes a personal philosophy, a personal question to a certain level. But but yeah, I mean, I, I still think, you know, even at the end of that, uh, even if you're somebody who thinks, well, any reasonable person should own a gun because of X, Y, Z, um, and you're encouraged by more people doing that, uh, you should still be concerned about if the reason they're doing that is because yes. everybody thinks society is getting worse. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And even if, I mean, even if you think, and I don't necessarily share this view, but even if you think, the more the merrier, you know, the more gun owners we have, the, the better. Yeah. Um, uh, as you say, you should still be concerned because of the reasons, you know, no, no one, I assume even the most sort of, you know, uh, uh, you know, the strongest gun advocate wants to live in a society where, you know, where, you know, gunplay is common, uh, sure. you know, uh, yeah. and so, uh, shootouts are not something anybody should want to see. Right. And so, um, you know, we, we, I mean, we built a civilization in part because we, you know, we wanted to create an environment in which people could thrive and, and that included security and order. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's why we have, that's why we've given the monopoly on violence to the government and asked them basically in exchange to protect us. So, you to know, some degree, right. <laughs> or we've asked them. <laughs> so, yes. Um, uh, and, and monopoly may be the wrong. I know that's right. the, the term everybody uses, but obviously yes. to help the right. Well, that's, that's, and tone, but that's I, I get what you're saying though, for sure. But, yeah. um, but for people who want to read more of your writing and, and this piece, uh, obviously you go over the Dis- discourse magazine, but how, what else is over there? How can they, how can people follow you and the magazine? So uh, you can go to discoursemagazine.com. Uh, and uh, the magazine will pop up. Uh, uh, we have a presence on all social media, so you can find us there as well. Um, uh, you can find us through the Mercatus Center and the Mercatus Center website. And the Mercatus Center, by the way, does a lot more than discourse. It's just one tiny piece of their work. They do a lot of great economic work. Uh, uh, they have a, a pluralism and sort of speaking to this uh, a, a subject, a, a pluralism and civil exchange program uh, that they've been building. Uh, so it's a, it's a great place with all kinds of wonderful uh, uh, initiatives. The discourse again is just a piece of that. Um, and then, um, uh, yeah, I write probably every other week or so for discourse. Um, other than that, I'm editing great writers like you, 
so, uh, and we have a lot of really wonderful people, including Steve, uh, who write for us, uh, folks like Martin Gurry, um, and, uh, others, others who have written for us in the past, like Matt Ridley. Uh, again, we publish on virtually everything. So, uh, you can read about, you know, in, in what uh, the piece we put up today was by Tevi Troy on Jewish funerals. I mean, so, you know, it's, it's very eclectic. Uh, yeah. it's not just all public policy oriented. Mercatus it's very is interesting. Known, yeah. Mercatus yeah. is known for its free market economics. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of its part of its core mission. Uh, and we have some wonderful people here who write for us, uh, Jeremy Thurgy and others, but, um, but there's a lot more to it than that. Oh yeah. Sure. yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All so, right. Well, great. We appreciate you coming on and, uh, and we're going to head over to our news update now. All right. Thanks for having me, Steve. It was a pleasure. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the news update. I'm contributing writer, Jake Fogelman, joined as always by reload founder, Stephen Gutowski. How are we doing this week, Steve? I'm, I'm doing well, Jake. Better than all rights, which is what we always normally say. That's right. How, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. I'm a little tired. Uh, like we were talking off off camera, I uh, had an office Christmas party for my full time job last night, so I'm dragging a little uh, bit this morning. But but here I am for the, for the podcast for all you listeners out there. <laughs> Dedication. That's good. I appreciate That's what we that. bring here at the reload. <laughs> yes, we'll have to do a reload Christmas party at some point. Um, yeah. Uh, just the two of us over over Zoom. That's right. <laughs> from from Virginia and Colorado. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't. I wonder if I've stopped getting invited to the free weekend party. Oh, I'm, getting, I'm being snubbed. I think I have to <laughs> to complain. Um, no, but, <laughs> uh, I'm actually going to the Christmas trees in D.C. tonight. There's um, for anyone who doesn't know there. Are, they're like the, the Congress and the White House have like competing Christmas trees uh, for, for some reason. Um, <laughs> the I think the White House one gets more attention because the president does like a ceremony every year and and they have like a concert and stuff. And and uh, so it's kind of a big deal. But the, the co- Congress also has a giant tree that they uh, bring in and put up. And I think they call that one the people's tree. So <laughs> I don't know if this is meant to be a rivalry thing or not, but, uh, you know, if you've ever been to DC, the white house and Congress are not very far away from each other. So it's pretty easy to go and see both of them. Uh, it's a bit of a walk if you're, if it's, you're at, if it's at night and it's very cold, like it's going to be tonight. So I'm going to probably drive from one to the other, but, uh, they're very nice. They're giant trees. They're all lit up. They got, you know, some, usually some sort of theme or, they have school children send in ornaments and stuff. And, and the White House one has a tree for every state as well, a normal size tree uh, out front that you can walk around and look at. But uh, it should be a fun time going with my girlfriend and, and some friends and their kids. Uh, so looking forward to that. Um, and and oh, also, I dropped off finally <laughs> my concealed carry permit application uh, for D.C. Um, now, uh, anyone following along the, the podcast knows that I've, this has probably been like a six month, I guess, uh, adventure. I'm <laughs> a little bit longer than that, I, I suppose, because I got the training done in April and then the next available, um, uh, App, uh, application drop-off appointment day because that's they make it all I did was drop off my application this week 
Um, and you know, I get into this a lot more detail on the Active Self-Protection Podcast. So if you want to hear about the whole experience, you should check that out. Uh, the, the, they call it the Gutowski Files over there. So check that out for a longer version of the story. But um, yeah, uh, that you had to schedule the appointment. That was like three months out from when I did the class. And then I had to cancel that one. I had to cancel twice for various reasons. I get into it, including the when that murderer was outside the my mom's farm and I had to go up there. That was also happened to be the day that I was supposed to drop off my application. Anyway, finally done, um, which, you know, you might think, well, that means you have your permit. No, uh, I got to wait another 60 to 90 days to actually get the permit. Uh, and then don't believe they even send you a physical permit anymore. They just send you like an email <laughs> with a digital copy of it. So um, I guess if you ever get stopped by a, a cop, you have to like pull out your phone and show them. I don't know. Make sure your it's, phone's charged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think I'll probably print out a copy of it as well. I think a lot of people do that, but yeah, it's always interesting how different jurisdictions handle that. Like Virginia is just a little flimsy piece of paper. That's like signed with ink. Um, and you're supposed to carry that around on you all the time. Uh, and they last for five years. So, you know, <laughs> they get pretty ratty after a while. Yeah. If you I can imagine. Don't storm. Right. In Pennsylvania. They, they give you a nice laminated copy, um, which I appreciate with your picture on it. Virginia doesn't require a picture. DC does. I don't know. It's, it's varies state to state, right? For unclear reasons why, why it's different. But um, yeah, anyway, hopefully I'll actually have my permit by June. Uh, I get <laughs> maybe be almost a year long know. process by the time it's all said and done. Yeah. I mean, I got delayed. So it's my, my experience is a little bit longer, but you can hear the whole thing on active self protections, uh, news, uh, news podcast that I do with, with them. But, uh, yeah, not, not a great experience as you might imagine. <laughs> yeah, sure. Um, but yeah. What, what about you? How, you know, outside the Christmas party, what else you got going? So the, uh, <clears throat> the shooting that I told listeners about last week got postponed to this weekend. Just we had some scheduling mm-hmm. problems getting so we're going to go tomorrow to that fancy range that I was telling everyone about called the gallery out here in Colorado. And what's, what's funny is uh, after we shoot, they're actually hosting a watch party for the division two college national championship. Uh, it's Colorado school of mines. So it's a big engineering school out here is in the national championship. And a buddy that I go shooting with is a, an alum from there. So we're going to uh-huh. go shoot and then go watch the division two national championship in the little bar restaurant area. So I'm looking forward Engineers to that. Engineers playing football that, it's crazy right <laughs> yeah it is it's like the least you would not expect them to be a division two football powerhouse but they've been killing it the last couple of years hey that's awesome <laughs> uh yeah engineering was big at, at my school messiah uh university it was messiah college when i went there but i guess it's upgraded since um they were big division three because they're a very small school uh soccer powerhouse and men's and women's they would win the national championship at base almost every year um in both so um yeah i don't know i guess engineers are some of them are pretty good at sports <laughs> say some of them are sneaky athletic <laughs> yeah yeah um anyway what, what do we got in terms of news this week yeah so uh in terms of links in the newsletter uh, one interesting one comes to us from the santa fe new mexican um it's sort of a validation of an analysis piece analysis piece you wrote about the GoSafe Act, the Gas-Operated Semi-Automatic Firearm Exclusion Act, which was the the uh, um, 
four Democratic senators attempt to rebrand an assault weapon ban. Um, yeah. It hadn't really gone anywhere at the federal level, but we now have the New Mexico governor saying that she plans to introduce a version of that act in New Mexico. So it's getting some legs somewhere. Yeah. Well, that was the one of the weird things about that bill at the federal level is that they made this big you know, PR announcement about it, this media push for it. And then Chuck Schumer had a vote on an assault weapons ban. And he thought, well, maybe it's going to be this one because it probably has a better chance of getting to 50 votes than the traditional assault weapons ban. Um, uh, and then, no, no, he just put up the the regular assault weapons ban. And, and of course, it didn't go to an actual vote. So it doesn't really uh, matter in terms of, you know, potential embarrassment for not getting to 50 votes. But yeah, you know, this is supposed to be a, a rebrand effort, <clears throat> which you'd expect would um, be used to try and get a little more support. And New Mexico hasn't been able to pass a normal, uh, traditional style AR-15 and large capacity magazine, you know, so-called large capacity magazine ban uh, yet. So they're going to try this effort. And obviously New Mexico uh, is where Heinrich is, is, senator from so uh, i guess they're following his lead in this in this way and it'll be interesting to see how that turns out uh, especially because of how poorly the bill is written the actual text of it um it does a lot more than i think these senators understand that it does like we've, we've talked about the implications of some of the text in there um you know anything that can improve the uh, rate of fire of a semi-automatic handgun or any semi-automatic actually not even just gas operated ones we talked about how <clears throat> in this bill gas operated is defined to mean things that aren't gas operated systems that aren't gas operated uh, like blowback or or recoil operated they're just put into the definition they just call them gas operated anyway it's a pretty weird bill honestly um but Anything that makes a semi-automatic function quicker, you know, the rate of fire faster would be banned under this bill uh, as illegal to possess. So that, I mean, that could be, the, the, the obvious intention of that is bump stocks or, or devices like bump stocks that help you fire a semi-automatic faster than you otherwise normally could. But it says anything with that, that produces an appreciable difference in rate of fire. Uh, and that could be, a lighter recoil spring, um, a lighter trigger. I don't, you know, it's, they don't get into the details of it, but the, the, it sure seems like it could apply to all those things as well. So in a number of ways, it's much stricter than a traditional solvents ban. In some ways it's less strict, right? Um, but we'll see how it fares down there in New Mexico, if they actually get through with it. I, I also think it's like, it's a rebranding effort where the brand is much worse, right? Because most people don't know what a gas-operated semi-automatic uh, firearm is. Um, they, they have no idea what that means. And they, it's not as scary sounding, I would think, either as assault weapon, um, where people have a general vague idea of what that means. Right. So, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see if it... Uh, has done enough to change the dynamics in New Mexico. Yeah, certainly. Yeah, and their uh, legislative session kicks off this January, so we'll we'll get get to see relatively soon whether that can uh, 
improve its for the fortunes of that type of bill. Yeah. Um, the next link we want to talk about today is a, a funny story coming, well, funny just for the political implications, but the uh, New York Times has a report that the ACLU is has stepped in to represent the NRA in its upcoming Supreme Court First Amendment case. So uh, a little bit of strange bedfellows going on at the Supreme Court. Yeah, to some degree. I mean, the ACLU <clears throat> was supportive of the NRA's position in this case from the beginning, right? This is, and it's important to remember here, this is a First Amendment case. Yeah. It's not a Second Amendment case, even though it involves the National Rifle Association. Um, it's about when a New York regulator, the financial regulator in New York, essentially sent a letter and told um, financial institutions, insurance companies, banks, that they should consider not working with the NRA essentially over reputational risks because of the NRA's political opinions. And uh, I mean, I, hopefully anyone who's listening to that description can understand why this created a First Amendment issue uh, because you have a government official pressuring essentially uh, private companies into uh, boycotting a group based on their political beliefs. That's sort of the baseline here. Now, the NRA hasn't fared well at the lower courts. They lost in at the appellate level because the judges in that case, uh, and I'm very uh, I'm paraphrasing here. This is a very quick summary, but uh, we wrote about it uh, in the past, so you can you can look it up. But uh, the, the exact wording of this ruling. But essentially, their claim was that the the official was using her power to persuade rather than trying to um, forcefully intimidate these financial institutions into complying with what she wanted. And so the, essentially, they're just argued that she hadn't done enough to cross the line into violating the First Amendment. Uh, now, this is a case where I think you know, often we we do a lot of tea reading, tea leaf reading about the Supreme Court here, and we're going to do some in a moment as well, some more. But uh, this is one of those cases where I think the court taking the case in the first place gives you a pretty good indication of where they're going to end up on it, uh, because the lower court, oftentimes you can theorize that the Supreme Court is only taking cases. Uh, I shouldn't say only, but the, many times when they take a case. It's because they want to overturn what the lower court had done, um, unless there's you know a circuit split or something like that. There, you might be a little more complicated, or or, or there's some novel thing about uh, a new standard that they've set up and they want to clarify themselves further or what have you. But this one, you know, you're talking about First Amendment case, First Amendment litigation is is pretty well established at this point, and um, or jurisprudence, and and so it's it's hard for me to look at them taking this case and not immediately think they're going to overturn the lower court and rule in favor of the NRA. Uh, the ACLU getting on board is interesting in a political sense because, I mean, it's certainly good for the NRA. You know, it's a win for them. They're probably going to win this case, and that's going to be, uh, you know, a real positive mark for them in, uh, after a series of negative ones for the last couple of years, right? They're, they've shrunk a lot. They've lost a million members. They've, they're still undergoing um, you know, this corruption case in New York, um, but they will probably get a win out of this one and, and it'll be a, a at least good PR for them. They might win a couple, you know, some money out of it too from, from New York state over the violation of their rights. But um, you know, what interests me more about it is the ACLU uh, on their end, they actually had some pushback for doing this from some of their chapters. Yep. I think North Carolina, 
uh, was the first one to to make a big deal. I think, uh, but I think it was like three or four chapters, and, and most prominently New York State's chapter, which is yeah, where this case is taking place. Right. So internally, they had arguments against doing this, essentially claiming that the ACLU didn't need to get in this involved in the case and defend the the NRA because the NRA has lawyers of its own and has money and they could afford good lawyers or what that was sort of the argument you saw but it also did just kind of come they were that also there were a number of arguments about how the nra is like bad so they shouldn't represent them which is sort of bottom line was what some of these groups were posting right which um gives you an indication about where the aclu is we've talked about this in the, the show in the past right this sort of um degradation of these single issue groups whether it's the NRA or the ACLU, uh, where they've kind of become more like identity groups. They're more like, like the ACLU has st stopped advocating for civil liberties in all cases and been more um, willing to court just uh, things, issues that appeal to liberal Democrats, because that's the core of their base of supporters right and the same thing with the nra to some degree i'm you know not completely in either of these groups but to some degree you've seen them branch out into other areas that don't have anything to do with their mission you've seen the nra talk about immigration or vaccine mandates or things like that they've made ads to that end and um yeah because they become sort of in some ways a con conservative republican identity group because that's the core of their membership and uh I guess the calculation for a lot of these groups is not just the NRA or ACLU. You see this across the board with a lot of single issue groups that where the issue has been totally captured by one party or the other. And um, and so you get a lot. I mean, you see this with the gun control groups, too, right? A lot of their ads uh, are there's a lot of what people call intersectionality, right? That you get a lot of gun group ads talk about abortion instead of guns. Um, and. So uh, in that sense, the, seeing the ACLU take up a case for, uh, to defend the NRA is uh, it, a departure from that trend. Um, and depending on whether you like that trend, it's either good news or bad news. I, I would say it's good news. That's a, just a personal opinion because um, I think this trend is bad. <laughs> it's bad. But uh, regardless how you feel about the trend, it's it is interesting to see the ACLU go out and actually take on the case instead of just filing an amicus brief or something like that, which they had done at the lower court level. And we'll have to see what, where this all ends up though. I would say we'll certainly keep following that as it uh, moves the, forward to the Supreme Court. The NRA is probably going to win. The ACLU and the NRA are probably going to win just to be, <laughs> right. uh, just to make a bold prediction there. Uh, but speaking of legal developments with kind of uh, humorous political implications, we have a story that we covered this week about the Hunter Biden uh, indictment and the step that his legal team took to fulfill a threat that they initially made during the early stages in the investigation. Uh, they've officially filed a motion claiming that his gun charge indictments are unconstitutional under the Second Amendment, uh, citing several of the, including the, the Fifth Circuit case we've covered. Um, where, you know, the appeals court in that instance and several other district courts have ruled that the federal prohibition on uh, drug users from owning guns or, or purchasing guns is unconstitutional. And they're saying, well, that renders Hunter Biden's indictment unconstitutional, too. So that's certainly interesting. We have a uh, 
the president's son taking an opposite position to the stance of his own father. So, yeah, I would say more remarkable than he, I mean, it's, there's some humor in it, I suppose, but it's just because there's an irony to that right. setup of like the president is very uh, in favor of enacting new gun restrictions certain and enforcing very strictly the ones that exist. He even increased um, the penalties for this very charge that Hunter's facing. Right. So there's a, certainly an irony there that Hunter is, is now uh, going to be on the other side of that fight. And that, uh, but it's just more like re remarkable to see this happen uh, where you could have, uh, there's a realistic chance that uh, you could get a U.S. v. Biden Supreme Court case over the Second Amendment that sets a Second Amendment precedent. Um, or at least as part of a collection of places, cases like the Fifth Circuit one that you that you mentioned, uh, Daniels. Yeah. Um, uh, because yeah, uh, Hunter. Yeah, the, there's oftentimes you get these sort of um, legal theories that get filed in cases that are, that are high profile that are kind of done for to grab headlines, right? To, and they're not actual. They're not actually going to go anywhere. This isn't really that, you know, Hunter right. said he would do this or his lawyer said he would do this. And now he has. And it's not a it's not a like far fetched idea that he could win on that because other cases, as you noted, are, there's defendants winning on this argument. Um, and so, you know, it, it's not a crazy idea, especially because the burden under Bruin, uh, the Supreme Court precedent, which we'll also talk about in a moment here. Um, puts the the burden is on the government to prove that the law is constitutional rather than the other way around. So it's a, it's a relatively low um, effort, I guess, argument um, by by defendants in these cases, because the burden is, it hasn't always been, to be fair, if you look at how the, some of these lower courts have come out, a lot of them just kind of like, uh, yeah, well, the, uh, the dicta in Heller says, uh, you know, Longstanding prohibitions on felons are are okay, so we're going to extend that to, and we're not going to do all the work, and the government doesn't have to present all the evidence that its that its laws is part of the historical tradition or whatever. Um, but this is why you're seeing people with public defenders make it up to the Supreme Court um, uh, on these kinds of charges, even very unsympathetic plaintiffs like Rahimi, who is the current case at the court right now. Um, subject to a domestic violence misdemeanor and had a gun and did was accused of a bunch of crimes uh, outside of this particular case. But, um, you know, he, he made it all the way up because that's, that's what, uh, that's the kind of legal argument that Bruin unlocks. The, and that's what Hunter is now making. And we'll, we'll have to actually legitimately follow along with how this goes, because it's, it's not going to be, necessarily something that gets tossed out immediately as a sort of frivolous claim. And yep. that's what makes it all really remarkable. You had a whole analysis piece on this uh, a couple of weeks back when, when the possibility was raised and now we have it unfolding in real life. I was going to say, it will be interesting to watch. <clears throat> like you said, it's, it's certainly not far-fetched, especially these days because of the post-Bruin world, uh, but it's not a slam dunk either, right? We've seen plenty no. of district courts that have upheld the prohibition. So there's no guarantees one way or another. But it's certainly just because of the, the who the 
defendant is in this case and, and the stakes, it makes this one, I think, one of the more closely watched versions. Yeah. And we're going into President Biden's reelection campaign where he's yeah. uh, down in the polls at the moment. So it's another political distraction for him um, as well. So Certainly. there's a lot of there's a lot of legitimate news hooks to this thing. You know, there's um, there's a lot of attention on Hunter Biden just generally because he's President Biden's son. But, there, you know, there's a lot there's reasons to cover him, even if uh, you know, you don't usually pay attention to the kids of, of politicians or whatever. This, this case has a lot of legitimate hooks to it from a news perspective, I think. Certainly. Um, and then the final story we're going to cover today is another one uh, that we wrote up this week, uh, also dealing with the Supreme Court. Uh, another instance of the court uh, refusing or denying a request rather to intervene early in the Illinois, the saga, ongoing saga with Illinois assault weapon ban, or in this case, a municipal assault weapon ban in Naperville. Um, so it's the second time in this exact case from the National Association of Gun Rights, who's the gun rights group plaintiff that's bringing this case. They've tried now two times to get the Supreme Court to step in. And both times the court has unceremoniously denied that request. Yes, unceremoniously, basically silently. They haven't, there's been no noted dissents. The court hasn't written anything about why it's not getting involved at this stage. Uh, the important thing to keep in mind is that this is these are emergency requests. People call this the the shadow docket sometimes, yeah. uh, you know, because sometimes the court will uh, get involved on an emergency basis and won't explain itself. Um, so, uh, you know, this is sort of a way of short circuiting the normal legal process to try and get the court to do something before it's, you know, your actual turn to ask them for help, right? If that makes sense. Um, you know, that these cases haven't gone through the merits completely yet. They're at the preliminary injunction stage, which is where, you know, and I, this stuff I know gets really confusing for, for normal people. Um, and for, it can be confusing for us too, right? As, as yeah. people who aren't lawyers, but, uh, the preliminary injunction stage is essentially where you're trying to get a law blocked before it goes into effect and you're trying to do that quickly. So you're asking for basically unusual. Um, it's not, it's hard to call it unusual because this is how a lot of cases go, but you're asking for early relief before the merits of the case have actually been argued technically, uh, even though it, to issue a preliminary injunction, judges have to find that it's uh, likely the law you're trying to get blocked is unconstitutional. And so there's, very few circumstances that I'm aware of uh, where, you know, in the cases that I've watched at the very least as a reporter, where the preliminary injunction ruling doesn't match the merits ruling, you know, even though technically they don't have to, um, if that makes sense. So you're sort of the way these, the way these courts are set up, there's, and, and look, there's good, there's good reasons for these things. Um, Potentially, you know, the, uh, maybe we'd have a, maybe we should have a lawyer on at some point to just go through some of this basic stuff. But my, the only point here is that uh, you're not at the merits level of the case. You're not at the full uh, argument stage with, with this assault weapons ban case. You're at the stage where the group is trying to get a block put on the law before you go to the full merits discussion. And it seems that the court just doesn't want to get involved at that spot in any of these gun cases, right? Uh, the Second Amendment cases, at least. Now, uh, the complication here, 
Uh, so first, you know, from that, I would say you can't draw too many conclusions uh, off of what's going on with this stuff. Um, you know, oh, has the court changed its mind about the Second Amendment or the Bruin test or any of this stuff? Uh, I don't know that you can uh, make a solid conclusion just based off of these, what they're doing with these emergency requests. Um, at the same time, they have granted two to the government in the ghost gun ban case um, out of Texas, the, the ATF. Uh, the rule that they put in place to administratively ban um, homemade guns without serial numbers or the sale of unfinished gun parts, essentially. Uh, those have, that rule has been found un likely unconstitutional and there have been preliminary injunctions put on it. And the court has stepped in when the government has requested an emergency stay on those rulings to keep the uh, their administrative rule in place and enforcement in place while the case goes forward. And they've done that twice. Uh, there were some noted dissents on that. It was, uh, I think there were four conservatives who dissented in that instance. I think it was Roberts and, and um, Barrett who, who didn't, right. If I'm remembering it right. Um, but again, like even that, uh, while I'm sure it's, well, it's like understandable that gun rights advocates would be upset at, with the court for doing, for issuing those emergency stays, but not issuing emergency injunctions in like the New York gun free zones cases, uh, or the, the Sullivan's ban case out of Naperville, Illinois. Um, I don't think that any of this tells you how the court is going to go on the merits on any of these cases uh, is like the ATF one. That's not a Second Amendment case, first of all, or not hasn't been adjudicated that way. At least there are some Second Amendment claims in there, but um, it's more of an administrative powers case. And I don't think that the court, if you look at their record to this point, they've been very skeptical of administrative power. Uh, if you look at like the EPA case from last year, it was a pretty big um, blow to administrative power. And so I would be surprised if any of these have more than a procedural justification for why they're doing this. Um, they seem to want, in the Second Amendment cases, I, I think they they want full records to be developed before they take something. Um, they just handed down Bruin, you know, last year. And so they're getting a lot of requests to follow that. And I think they want the lower courts to go through the entire process and build a full, um, a full docket before they actually do anything on it. And, and keep in mind, they are doing a second amendment case. Rohini that I mentioned earlier, they're literally doing a second amendment case right now. They may not want to take a bunch of second amendment cases until they get through that one. Um, and probably through the other ones that are directly implicated by that one, like range and Daniels. So the other, the other thing to it, right. Is, Really, they've said a little bit, right? In the New York case, they did, you had Alito and Thomas issue a, a concurrence, meaning that they agreed with not getting involved at the stage that they were asked. But they issued a concurrence that they, where they called the, the ruling against New York's law 
thorough. Uh, they basically praised it and 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 told the Second Circuit that they need to hurry uh, or at least not delay things. But it, like judicial timelines are very stretched out. Like I understand why people get upset about this because they they view like well, this, these assault weapons bans are going to go into effect while we're waiting for the courts to do to get through this process. And we all think that this stuff's unconstitutional, so the court should just step in and say it is immediately. And sometimes the court will do that with things, but most of the time it doesn't uh, on a whole variety of things. And it doesn't mean they're not going to. But uh, that's, just, that's, just where, that's just where I'm standing. And I think the main thing, they said they said that in that case, but the what's stronger evidence to me uh, that this isn't how they're handling this is an indication of where the court is at on the Second Amendment today, or that they've changed how they view the the rights in the case, is the silence. You don't see uh, dissents from the conservative justice, especially like Thomas and Gorsuch, who had previously been open to issuing dissents when the court rejected certain cases. Um, and you don't see them talking about the Second Amendment being a second class right in the sense that if, that's, if you start seeing that stuff happen, that's when you would think that maybe something has shifted on the court or, you know, just wait until they issue Rahimi and see what they're what they say there is to that'll give us real insight into what they actually think because it'll be their actual written opinion. Right. No, I think it's a good point. And just to kind of put a, a final point on it, uh, that Alito and Thomas concurrence you're right. On the one hand, they praise the lower court ruling while saying they're not going to get involved. But Alito specifically wrote, like, I understand us not getting involved to mean we respect the Second Circuit's procedure. Yes. So they they literally spelled out like, hey, this is all this is about is respecting lower court, you know, due process and, and procedure. So the fact that they said that in that one case, I think it's fair to say that that probably similar logic applies to some of these other cases. Um, I think to, you're right. To your point, you can't really draw too much conclusions on how they view the merits of these cases. Yeah, uh, but again, I understand why people, why sure. the gun rights advocates don't like, don't like it. You know, why sure. they would want the court to start doing more. But uh, you know, keep in mind between Heller and it was like 15 years between Heller and and uh, Bruin, and they took like one important gun case in that time uh, in Satano and. So the court is actually moving really fast in comparison. Now they have yeah. a second amendment case. They've, they're likely going to resolve two more that the DOJ has, you know, the Daniels and range cases that DOJ has asked them to intervene on. And then um, it's entirely likely that they might do a second amendment case every year or more than one uh, from this point forward. I mean, uh, so, you know, I, I get it. People want, relief when they think that their rights are being violated, understandably uh, so. Uh, but it's just the court doesn't always work that way. And it's not, it's important not to read too much into this one way, regardless of which side you sit on, because you've seen a lot of like Illinois officials who claim that this is now, and I've seen media members trying to claim that this means that the, the court approves of assault weapons bans. And I don't think that's at all what it means. Right. Um, but yeah, but uh, you know, it's not impossible that the court has shifted either. So I, I don't want to, I don't want to forestall that. I'm just saying, based on what's happened, that's not the conclusion I would draw. But that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, if you want to support our reporting, you should head on over to reload.com and buy a membership today. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of reporting and analysis that you will not find literally anywhere else. 
um, and you will support the work that we do. That is how we get uh, our, our funds to operate. We are not funded by anyone else but our members, and um, it is vital to our work that we have those uh, folks supporting us with their membership dues. Of course, you also get a, uh, a lot of value out of that, I think, in being able to read these analysis pieces that you can't find anywhere and also getting this podcast a day early and a, the opportunity to appear on the show like our next guest here. We have a member segment this week, so um, we're going to head over to that now. All right. I'm here with Reload member uh, Chris. Uh, how, do you sp- how do you pronounce your last name, Chris, actually? Michaels. Michaels. It's, okay. it's just missing the A. <laughs> yes. It, uh, I always try to – this is something I always had issues with when I first started doing the podcast. Right, is I asked the guest name uh, and how to pronounce it, and then I wouldn't remember uh, right after asking them. It's always an adventure. Um, so uh, Michaels is not that hard, though. That's a pretty – that's a pretty good one. But yeah, you, it doesn't have the A, so I wasn't quite sure. Um, yeah, yeah, I get called all sorts of things. <laughs> uh, welcome to the show. Thanks for thanks for coming on and doing this member segment for us. Uh, we haven't had one in a little while, so I'm excited about it. Um, and yeah, just why don't you give us just a little bit of background about yourself? Where'd you grow up? Um, how'd you, do you own firearms? Have you always owned firearms? Uh, if not, you know, how did you get into it? That sort of thing. Well, I grew up till I was about nine in the Midwest, kind of all over the place. And then my family moved to Phoenix, Arizona, the Valley, and when I was about nine. And I lived there till I went to college. I've been in Arizona ever since. Okay. Um, I started shooting when I was pretty young. Um, my parents took me to shooting like 22s and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom was a better shot than my dad, which was kind of cool, but they both, you know, took me uh, a little bit of like rabbit hunting, things like that. And then when I got into college, I started doing some bird hunting and went elk hunting for a while. And then in the, about 2011, I had a incident with a um, former employee that um, got me into concealed carry. Okay. And, which then led into more gun rights activism and interest in the, in that. Okay. And, and you're in Arizona now. What, uh, are you, what do you do for a living? Are you retired? Are you, are you still working? Or? Well, I did IT for about 35 years at Northern Arizona University. And I retired four or five years ago. And so now I'm uh, taking it easy. I do some shooting and try to do a little bit of um, – Volunteer work, community service, things like that. Oh, wonderful! And and uh, so you're still, you know, actively into firearms. You still shoot. Um, do do you do? Uh, you said you got interested in in like gun rights. Um, have you been active in like advocacy in in that in that area as well? Or? Well, you know, I live in northern Arizona, mm-hmm. and it's tough to get to the valley to um, do anything at the state capitol. So most of my stuff is remote, you know, writing letters, making phone calls, um, life member of NRA, um, the Second Amendment, Second Amendment Foundation, mm-hmm. and the state rights group, the Arizona Citizens Defense League. Okay. So you do, you do uh, have that little bit of activism that you 
that you take part in uh, where you live out in, in Arizona. Um, and, yeah. and so what, uh, as far as guns go, what, what kind of shooting do you like to do? You mentioned hunting earlier and, and concealed carry. So I'm guessing you have a, a variety of firearms then. I have, I don't know, a dozen pistols, pew rifles, pew shotguns. Um, I don't hunt anymore. Uh, I had a stroke a couple of years ago and mm. it's made it a little more difficult to, um, do various things, balance mm. issues, some vision issues. Yeah. But, um, how, how do you, how do you adapted with, uh, after the stroke with, with shooting? Oh, it's interesting. I went to a red dot. I was really against red dots before I was like, no, I don't want to spend the money. I don't want to take the time, but now it takes my vision a lot longer to focus when I change, um, focal distances. Mm. So the red dots really easy, much easier because it's a, you know, focus on the target the whole time and I don't have to jump back and yeah. forth. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly. And then the other thing I had done is I shot realm long guns right-handed all my life. And I was at a steel challenge match and all of a sudden my vision just changed and I couldn't hit anything. And so I started shooting rifles left-handed. Okay. So you had to adjust all that uh, from how you had been doing it. Huh? Yeah. And I was kind of worried about it, but it's worked out pretty well. Oh, good. Good. And uh, do you still carry? If I mean, you don't, if you don't mind me asking. You don't sure. Have to say. Yes, I do. Okay. I and got my concealed carry permit in like about 2011, mm -hmm. 2012. And, but Arizona's um, permitless carry constitutional carry now. Right. Right. Uh, what it, what system do you like to use? What kind of holster? You know, I used to be strong side and it's still a little more comfortable, but because of some of my physical limitations, it's faster to go appendix. So I've switched to appendix. Mm. Um, thanks to John Correa and Neil Widener. Um, Active self-protection yeah. Exactly, yeah. I um, tried out the Filster. It took me about a month to um, get comfortable with it. Yeah. But now yeah, it's my preferred, Mary, or my preferred method of carry. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's uh, appendix, you know, it takes a lot more adjusting to get used to, I, I find. Um, oh, it was hard at first. Yeah. Um, but, but like they say on the Filster Concealment Workshop, stick with it, you know. It yeah. takes at least a couple of weeks. Yeah, I think it's a really great resource and a good community over there uh, at, at Filster and there. Uh, they really help you dial in things if you haven't done it before, yeah. in my experience at least. And and I think once you once you do that, once you get it dialed in, it is uh, something that, you know, you realize some of the advantages of it. But, it, you know, there's still trade-offs regardless. You know, there's always going to be trade-offs when you're trying yeah. to carry around a gun on your person, right? Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, I think you have to change your wardrobe a little bit to – make appendix really work even with something like a whole filster that's uh, independent of your code. fortunately i didn't have to and it was actually better going appendix yeah. um okay. i printed less yeah uh, the yeah. biggest problem i've had with the filster is if you go to a non-permissive environment it's much more difficult to take the holster off mm -hmm. or take the gun out yeah. Um, in an inconspicuous way in your car. Yeah, you kind of have or to get next to partially it. undressed. To do it. <laughs> yeah, that, that just doesn't work very well. <laughs> no. So strong side's much better for that. Yeah, that makes sense, right? If you have to leave it in your car, which is obviously never ideal, but sometimes right. can, can happen. Um, but yeah. uh, that's that's fascinating. So uh, you know, obviously you you're you've been shooting your whole life here. You carry. You're, you used to hunt. You're very uh, active with with firearms, and and you have that advocacy aspect too is that 
uh, you know, how you got into the reload. What, what was it that, that drew you to the reload and why did you decide to become a member? Well, it was definitely an advocacy thing. Um, Sandy Hook happened on my birthday um, and it really set me off because I had a granddaughter that was just a little younger than the kids there. Mm. And um, it really bothered me how people um, painted the gun rights community as, you know, I'd say responsible. Mm. And I heard about it every year from on my birthday until this year. So I got kind of sick of it. But I, so I started listening to podcasts, um, looking around, doing some research. And I think I heard you first on Armed American Radio. Okay. I think you were back at the, was it the Free Beacon? Yeah, the Free then? Beacon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I always liked your, um, I'll say, fair and balanced view of things. So I started reading the Reload for a while. And eventually I decided I wanted to hear your, um, your analysis. And I wanted to support you because I think you're doing a unique thing in the gun rights community. Um, I like hearing from other opinions besides my own. I don't like the echo chamber or extreme on either side. And I felt like I got um, a good balance of that from the reload. So it was worth it. Well, that's wonderful. That's exactly what we strive for here. So I appreciate you saying that. Um, And, and so, uh, you know, when it comes to looking forward for you uh, at, uh, with your with your collection of firearms and carrying, you know, what what are some of the things you still want to, you know, do down the line here? Um, well, right now I'm like shooting Steel Challenge USPSA a couple times a month. Hmm. Um, I'll keep doing that. I'd actually like to try to go um, maybe trap or um, just shooting some clay pigeons or something with a shotgun to see how it works left-handed. Um, I might go hunting again for something easy, but I don't feel like doing week-long um, treks for elk anymore. Sure. And um, I'd say continue teaching my granddaughter how to shoot. Hmm. I took her to a steel, couple steel challenge matches this summer with a 22. She was good. It was great. So trying to, um, I guess, pass Second Amendment um advocacy or interest onto another generation mm. that's important to me yeah yeah i think that's important to a lot of gun owners and and i, I you know i, I want to try to get more into some of this competitive shooting as well uh you know hopefully i can get some free time to do that you know maybe we expand the reload a little bit and i'll have a little more free time when it's uh at that point but uh yeah no that's 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 wonderful um well, look, I appreciate you taking some time out to come on and, and talk uh, to me about, you know, just your life and, and your experience as a Reload member. And and I uh, really appreciate you, you doing that. You're welcome. And I really appreciate what you and Jake do. Thanks. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you're listening now and you want to get a membership, too, if you want to be uh, on a member segment or get access to those analysis pieces that Chris mentioned, you should head over to reload.com right now and, and check out our member options. Um, and, you know, we really appreciate it. We literally couldn't operate this place without people like Chris and, and the rest of our members. So uh, thank you again, Chris. I appreciate you coming on. That's all we've got for this week.